Transmitting from the lovely little city of Taylor, Texas, you are listening to Plow and Hose, a show dedicated to the joys and challenges of organic backyard gardening in Central Texas. I am your host, Julie Rydell. Welcome to the show. Hi, friends. Welcome back to Plow and Hose. I am out here in my backyard kind of a blustery March day, um, but I am just out here enjoying the day. It's been a little overcast this past week, but the temperature has been perfect. I can't believe that it has been one month since our awful ice storm that we had back in February, right over Valentine's Day. You know, aside from my busted irrigation system that froze and still needs to be fixed, and I've got a few dead, dying plants that are still sitting out here on my patio, um, I look out into my backyard, and I am really just amazed by the difference that just a few weeks can make. My yard is officially alive again, and I am so happy by all the new green growth I got plants and trees that I was worried might not make it. They seem to be bouncing back just as if we didn't have a major ice storm of exactly a month ago. I have blossoms on all of my fruit trees. One peach tree is just absolutely covered in beautiful pink blossoms. The other peach tree doesn't have as many blossoms, but it has some, you know, just enough. Um, so I hope that we have a chance for some cross-pollination action and possibly some fruit later this summer. My apricot tree that I love is blooming like crazy too. And this year, I've never seen so many blossoms on it, um, but this year it's pretty spectacular. And I can't help but feel really optimistic about getting apricots this year. Lots and lots of apricots. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed because I love apricots. After the storm, I also went ahead and planted some more sugar snap peas because those are a favorite for my family. Those have popped up. They all popped up that I planted and they're coming up really nicely. I planted potatoes and those are starting to come up too. I'm not sure how the potatoes are really going to do this year. Normally, potatoes get planted around mid-February, and that's when we had gotten hit with that awful Arctic blast. So these Yukon potatoes that I put out, um, they did go in after the mess, but they were definitely delayed and not planted in that ideal Valentine's Day, President's Day window. So I'll be quite surprised if they are very productive this year, but I'll be happy. But, you know, it's going to be a happy surprise because fresh dug potatoes are so good. And I also have some parsley coming up, finally. Parsley and new potatoes with just a little bit of salt and butter is just about one of the best things in the whole world. So, fingers crossed on those potatoes. 
I've also got some tiny little beet seedlings popping up through the soil. I'm going to thin those pretty soon so they can have space to grow. And with a little luck, I'm going to have some nice red beets to enjoy later in the spring. My oregano plant, um, it looked pretty good after I had uncovered it right after the freeze, but with the warmer weather, it has really perked up and there is some nice new growth on it. It does share a pot with my lemon thyme. Now this lemon thyme was mostly brown after I had uncovered it after the freeze, but with a little bit, it had, you know, like a little bit of green on one part of the plant, but the rest of the plant was totally crispy. I'm not sure what's going on. It, I looked at it again today and the green was gone. I'm not sure what's going on. I'm gonna leave it alone for now. Maybe it'll come back. I'm no Miss Cleo. I'm not a psychic. I'm not a plant psychic, but I'm just gonna put it out there. I think there will be a new time plant in my near future. Just a guess. Anyway, my other herb container um, that has two kinds of mint in it, uh, you know, three weeks ago, the chocolate mint seemed to be a little bit frazzled, but it was definitely still alive. There was green to it. It had green leaves. It was still kind of clinging to life. On the other hand, the spearmint that also shares that pot, it looked absolutely dead. I was just about to pull it up when I did my first round of freeze damage cleanup, but I decided to wait and I'm really glad I did because as of this morning, there's some new growth on my spearmint. Nearly all my perennial flowers like Greg's Mistflower, Salvia's, Turtcaps, they still don't have anything going on. You know, these plants are drought tolerant, but not really sure how freeze toler tolerant they are, but it's still really a little bit early for them. Um, they have spent the winter kind of dormant, so I'm going to leave them be and just cross my fingers that they come back in the next few weeks. Now, the most remarkable thing going on in my yard right now are the plum trees. We have four plum trees. Um, they're all different varieties and different sizes, but the most impressive one that we have is the little Mexican plum. It is so pretty right now. It's covered in these little tiny white flowers with little white petals, and it has this wonderful soft, sweet smell to it. You know, even though they are called Mexican plums, they are natives to Texas. They do really well in Taylor and of course all over Central Texas. They are considered a small understory tree, so they can tolerate a bit of shade, but if you want fruit from them, they need a fair bit of sun, um, just like all the other native fruit trees. They put out, um, little small plums, little like nickel size. Sometimes they get to be a, a little bit bigger, maybe the size of a quarter. Um, no matter what, you know, compared to like grocery store plums, uh, Mexican plums are little tiny things, but they are um, tasty, even if they have a little bit more pit than fruit. 
Mexican plums get to be about 15 to 20 feet tall and about the same size wide. So at max, they're going to be 20 by 20. With very little to no shaping, you can have a really nice little flowering tree that looks so nice all year long. And then you have a bonus of getting some fruit. Native trees and plants are really hard to beat. Natives are adapted to our tough Texas climate and our, um, and our soils. So when we get extreme conditions like extra hot summers or brutal freezes like we just had, they do great. They do better than our more delicate plants and trees and even grasses. If you are tired of having to baby your plants, it might be time to get serious about learning more about native and non-native adaptive plants. Native plants are those plants and trees and grasses that occur naturally in our area. They are more suited to our local soils and temperature ranges. Now, when you hear Texas native, you gotta remember that's kind of a misnomer because Texas is a really big place with different types of soil and different types of weather conditions. The coastal parts of the state are humid and sometimes muggy, while western Texas is arid and dry. Tropical plants that thrive naturally in Houston cannot handle the dry and sometimes extremely hot and very cold temperatures of western Texas. And those desert plants, um, they really can't abide by the moist tropical conditions of the Texas coast. And then we have Central Texas area, which is a crazy mix of rocky limestone-based soil to the west of us, and then also heavy clay soil of the Blackland Prairie. And then there's actually some um, sandy loam that's south and um, east of us. So we've got a whole bunch of different soil types just here in Central Texas. So you're really gonna have to do some research if you're interested in replacing some plants that you lost over the freeze um, with more native plants. Here in Central Texas, we grow some things that are outside of our soil type and outside of our horticultural zone. And we can do this by modifying our soil, either through amending the soil or by growing things in containers or raised beds. Um, and we can also kind of manipulate the temperature a little bit by creating microclimates. Um, and those are conditions where you can like group plants together, um, next to a building or um, some other type of shelter and it's going to absorb you know the building or the surfaces are going to absorb the heat and that's going to help create a slightly warmer microclimate here in taylor you know we have that heavy black clay soil it really benefits from lots of compost and by enriching the soil with lots of compost, we can improve the soil and we can grow a wider variety of plants. 
You know, I can't think of any plants that just love soggy conditions other than swampy, bog-loving plants that grow in swamps and bogs or, you know, along um, the waterways like lakes and ponds. Our black clay just doesn't drain well, and it's really unsuitable for lots of plants that don't like to have soggy roots. Our part of Central Texas is in the Blackland Prairie. This heavy clay is great for native grasses and wildflowers and pecan and oak trees really seem to love it too. But most of our food bearing plants and crops need a bit of extra help. Fortunately, our soil responds to amendments. And not amendments like the Bill of Rights. I mean, soil amendments like compost. Compost is going to help our black clay soil drain a lot better. So whether you are wanting to grow a basic veggie garden or some fruit trees or some pretty flowers directly in the ground, you're going to want to amend our black clay soil um, that we have here. It's really easy to do. If you have a grassy patch that you want to transform into a flower bed or a vegetable vegetable bed, all you need to do is remove the grass and add lots of compost. If you're wanting to plant this spring, then you will need to till in probably two or three inches of compost after you scalp the grass. Scalping the grass sounds really savage, but it's not. You just take a pointy shovel, you know, one that has a little bit of a tip to it, push it down into the grass, and then dig down a few inches, wiggle the, your shovel around um, so that you can see the soil. You know, find where the grass meets the ground and then just lift up the grass and remove it. If your ground is fairly level, it's gonna be really easy just to slice through the ground um, horizontally, right where the grass meets that soil. You know, once you have the grass up, you can still, uh, once you have the grass up, you can till the soil, add three inches of compost all over your new bed area, and then till it again and mix in the soil and the compost together. Once that is done, your new in-ground bed is ready to go. You can plant right away. Just stick your transplants in or plant your seeds right in the soil and then just mulch and water. If you don't have plans for a super big in-ground garden this year or you don't have a tiller, that's fine. You can do without and cheat just a little bit. You just want to scalp that grass and get all the grass removed. You can use your shovel or a garden fork and just start turning the soil over and over while adding um, extra compost and just start working it in. Compost to me is a magical thing because you don't even really have to till or work it in manually. You can just put it right on top of the soil and let the microbes come and find it. All that organic matter is food for the little microbes and soil critters. They are going to work their way through the, um, through the soil and find the nutrients in the compost. If you leave the compost out on the surface of the soil, they're just going to go find it. It's going to take a little bit longer than if you till till it in with a rototiller. 
Um, I mean, they are little itty bitty microscopic things and they don't move super fast, but if you're patient, the microbes are, will find the compost and they'll do all the work for you. If you have more patience than time, you can just remove the grass, put out some compost on the top of the soil, and then when you're ready to plant, you know, you can dig your holes, loosen the soil, put a little bit more compost directly in the hole, and then plant. This is a more passive way of improving the soil, but it allows you to plant and have, have a pretty nice garden in the same season. For our Blackland Prairie soil, compost, water, and mulch are going to be the keys to success for planting directly in the ground. You are listening to Plow and Hose on KBSR Black Sparrow Radio. If you are enjoying my show, be sure to go over to www.blacksparrowmusicparlor.com and check out the station. We have lots of great music and information shows all painstakingly put together by a fantastic team based right here in Taylor, Texas. While you're on the internet, be sure to like, share, and follow the face uh, the Plowhouse Host Facebook page. It's really the best place to keep up with the show um, right now. You know, I have I post reminders, and then you know, it's it's an all it's also a chance for you to send me a quick note or you know share a picture with me. For in ground planting, plant selection is also really important, and that's where planting natives and adaptives can improve your chances of success. Perennial plants are those plants that come back every year. They flower; uh, they can be flowers or they can be vegetables. They grow and they flower and they seed. Um, they they set seed or they set fruit, but um, then they go dormant in the late fall. The tops of the plants um, may die back to the ground in the winter, but the roots will still be alive and they'll come back again in the springtime. Most of our drought tolerant native landscaping flowers are perennials. Wildflowers and vegetables are generally annuals. Um, annuals grow flower, set seed or fruit in one growing season and then they die completely. They don't come back. There are um, perennial vegetables like asparagus and artichokes. You put them in your veggie beds and you just leave them to grow year after year. But most of the produce that we want to grow, like tomatoes, corn, beans, those are all annuals, so you gotta plant them every year. No matter what type of plants that you want to grow, um, annuals or perennials, if you do your research on what variety grows best in our area, you'll have a much more carefree garden um, and that is also more productive. One, and, and, and it's not gonna demand as much water or nutrients and they won't have special growing conditions like needing e extra shade in the afternoon or if you are into tropicals, you'll most likely need um, to have a greenhouse um, to help protect them and keep them keep them warm. Luckily for us here in Central Texas, in Austin area, 
plant selection is actually pretty easy because we have so many wonderful local independent nurseries that specialize in native and adaptive plants. Local places select plants and seeds that can handle our soil and weather conditions. There are also lots of resources online um, that directly address our conditions here in Central Texas. You know, you're going to find personal blogs and you'll find gardening sites that provide information. Um, even the local county extension offices, um, Williamson County, Travis County, Bell County, Bastrop County, Hayes County, all of the uh, Central Texas counties, they will all have an extension office page and they are going to have specific information on plant varieties that do best in our soil um, and our zone. Um, here in Williamson County, we are horticultural zone 7B. Now for um, flowering plants and trees, I want to recommend the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center. They have a fantastic um, website and it's dedicated to everything native as far as plants go. In-ground gardening is great once you get your beds prepared. It's less expensive since you don't have to buy containers or soil or materials to build a raised bed, but it can be more challenging to keep out um, surrounding turf grasses out of your bed. You'll likely want to have some edging or barrier to help keep that grass from creeping into your nicely amended soil. Another disadvantage is that um, when you do in-ground gardening, your plants are going to be low on the ground and that can make harvesting more difficult, especially if you have mobility issues. So you may want to consider elevating your plants by putting in raised beds or containers for your veggies and specialty plants that have different needs. Raised beds are nice if you want your plants up off the ground so you aren't bending over as much or on your knees for weeding and planting. The downsides, it, our downside of raised beds are that they are more expensive um, to get started because you have to use wood or landscaping blocks or other materials to build your raised bed. And then you got to turn around and then fill it up with good soil. And you got to do both of those things before you can even begin um, planting anything. But, you know, if you think of it as an as an investment in your new gardening hobby and think about all the joy that you'll get spending time outside just tending to your plants and harvesting all kinds of fresh foods right in your own backyard. You know, your raised beds don't have to be super fancy. They don't have to be custom built. They don't have to look magazine worthy. They just need to contain good soil for your plants. Here in my backyard, we use cinder blocks for our raised veggie beds. And I gotta say, I am not crazy about the way they look, but now that the beds have been there for several years, I barely notice how hideous those cinder blocks are. Mainly because I'm more interested in what's growing in them, especially during the springtime and the summertime when everything looks so nice. 
Raised beds are great because you control what's in the soil. You are starting from scratch and you can adjust the content more easily than you can with in the ground gardening. You can buy bagged or bulk raised bed mix and just fill your beds with that or you can build your own blend. For Central Texas, a good formula for a DIY raised bed mix is 50% topsoil, 40% compost, and 10% soilless growing mixture. You know, that can be peat moss or core fiber. You know, you can throw some bark in there, maybe a little bit of sand or perlite or vermiculite. The topsoil, it can really be just the cheap stuff. The compost um, will enrich the topsoil, and then those other amendments will help keep your raised bed mixed, light and airy, while improving water retention, but then also drainage. So 50% topsoil, 40% compost, and then 10% soilless additives. Raised bed mix also works for most of your container-grown plants, Things like cacti and succulents, they have different soil needs. So you're, um, if you are planting those in pots, those are going to need different soil um, than your other plants. Last week on the show, I brought up one of my favorite ways to do a raised bed. Whenever I start a new raised bed, um, I like to fill the bottom portion with compostable materials like layers of cardboard, leaves, kitchen scraps, grass cuttings. Um, you can even use paper. This is called lasagna gardening. You build your raised beds with layers of compostable material, with layers of soil, and compost in between. So. You build it just like a pan of lasagna. It's super easy and it's an inexpensive way to fill a raised bed or oversized planter. It's a great way to suppress weeds and grass at the bottom of your raised bed. And things like newspaper and cardboard, um, they stay out of the landfill. So if you like the idea of lasagna gardening um, for a raised bed, then you might be interested in African keyhole gardening. A keyhole gardening is a riff on a raised bed, but it incorporates a couple of really clever ideas that can make for a pretty effective raised bed. Um, the keyhole describes the shape of the bed. It's a raised bed and it's made out of bricks or blocks, but instead of a large rectangle or square, the, the keyhole garden is round and it has like a slit in, uh, slit in it or you know sometimes like a wedge taken out um, that kind of like the point goes to the center. From above, um, the keyhole garden looks a lot like Pac-Man or maybe like a pie or a pizza that is missing a slice. The missing wedge allows for you to access the center of the bed and in the center is a compost basket where you can take your kitchen scraps, your weeds and like small yard debris and you place that inside of the basket. 
The basket is also where you will water your keyhole garden. So I want to tell you a little bit about how we made our keyhole garden and I hope that I can describe it for you pretty well. Um, we made like that Pac-Man shape outline using some leftover limestone um, blocks that we had. And then we put a layer of cardboard down in the bottom to kind of smother and suppress the grass. And then we made this basket. So the basket was actually um, not basket shaped, but um, it was just a bit of chicken wire that we had. And we rolled it into um, a small tube. I think it was probably like four feet tall, maybe. It's just a, you know, big tube. Um, and then we placed that in the corner of Pac-Man's mouth where, you know, the wedge um, forms a point. And so we placed that basket on the inside of Pac-Man's mouth. Um, we stuck that chicken wire tube there and then we added another row of limestone block. And then we repeated with a layer of topsoil and compost and cardboard and leaves or whatever. So we were building up the bed just like a lasagna gardening, alternating layers of soil and compostable materials. So we would build a layer of stone all the way around and then we would fill in with um, the soil la layer. Um, and we would do that all around the wire basket tube. When the whole thing was about three feet tall, we stopped and then we filled the final layer with some nice soil and compost and watered it all in. And then like the next weekend, we came back and, and filled it in with um, some wonderful plants. Then over the course of the summer, when we had weeds or kitchen scraps, we just throw those in that chicken wire basket tube. And this is um, also where we would water the garden. The idea is that the compost in the tube breaks down and that feeds the soil from the center. Watering from the center helps the layers break down and the roots of the plant um, grow towards the center where it's nice and moist and all the uh, nutrients from the compost are. It's really pretty cool and it's really effective and they do well here in Texas. I really hope um, that you will take some time and do a little research on it because I'm afraid I didn't really describe it well. I really like the way that you can tend your keyhole garden from all sides and it's really easier to tend and harvest um, inside that wedge um, and then also all the way around than um, tending a regular square or rectangular bed. I'm going to try to remember to look for some pictures of the keyhole gardens that we um, did a few years ago. And uh, I'll post those on the Plow and Host Facebook page if I find them. But in the meanwhile, I want to really encourage you to go look up African Keyhole Gardening. It's a great way to compost your kitchen scraps, especially if you don't have an active compost pile. Okay, I need to start wrapping up the show now. It's a great time of the year and I'm so happy that it's finally spring. So much is going on in our yard 
Um, and while you are out working on your winter cleanup, be sure to start clipping back the dead stuff as soon as you see any new green growth. Um, the new growth needs sunlight so that it's going to flourish more. So don't let the dead stuff block it out. As soon as you see it, just go ahead and uh, trim your, your plant back. The sun is going to stimulate even more growth and pretty soon we'll have our gardens all clean up and we may not even remember that we had such a horrible ice storm way back in February. All right, thank you for joining me today. <laughs>